You're listening to the Desperation Podcast. This week, you'll be hearing from three students as DSM takes over the night at DSM by DSM. Yes, DSM! Wow. Well, let me just say this on the front end, man. There's so many of y'all here tonight. So we got some chairs over here if you need a seat. We got some over here. We got some over there. And we got some over there. And so if you're sitting next to an empty chair, raise your hand, and you're about to make a new friend or meet your future spouse. You never know. Just made it so awkward. Come on. Find a seat. Find a seat. (laughs) Nope. Doesn't work. (laughs) Come on in. Welcome to DSM. How many of y'all are excited to be here tonight? Man, how many of y'all have already enjoyed the night with that amazing student-led worship we just had? Man, we got to do this more often. We got to do this more than once a year, dude. Tonight is just so ridiculous. We have so much. So I'm not going to preach. I'm going to open up the stage. But let me tell you why we do this. It would seem that we do like DSM by DSM and let it be student-led because I've run out of things to preach about or we're just kind of bored or we think it's really cute that teenagers want to talk about Jesus. But let me explain something to you. Nothing could be further from the truth because if you know me at all, you know I can always preach a sermon. But here's the thing. I never run out of stuff to say. That's my problem. But let me explain to you what Desperation Ministries is about. Desperation Ministries, and part of that is DSM, Desperation Student Ministry. You see, it's our belief, students, that God is calling forth a generation, this generation, to be able to walk with passion for the things of God, to be able to intercede on the behalf of their cities, their schools, the friends, the suicide epidemic, all of these things. God is calling out this generation. We believe that when students consecrate themselves and put aside the things that this world says that they need to be identified by and they walk as true sons and daughters of God, they can live out their purpose and their mission for their life. They don't have to live their entire lives guessing, God, why did you put me on this planet? You see, the world dismisses you guys and says that you have nothing to say. You're selfish consumers. All you care about is likes and photos of yourselves and selfies and all the rest of these things. But let me tell you, I can't speak for other, any other youth ministry. But as the pastor of Desperation Student Ministries and the pastor of Desperation Ministries, I believe in you. And I know that God is going to call this generation to do infinitely more than any generation that's come before you. And we believe in that. And by that belief, we want to put that belief into action. And so what we've done as a staff is we've literally handed the keys over to students tonight. And this is a fully student-led service. You're going to be led, you're going to be taught, and you're going to be challenged because we believe in our students here. And so if you're new here, welcome to DSM. You came on a really killer night. If you're a parent in here to watch your students in here, welcome the parents. DSM, can we welcome your parents in here? Can you say welcome? All right. So with that said, I'm going to shut up and I'm going to get out of the way. You're about to hear some of the most amazing words from God. Fresh bread, y'all. So stand up on your feet, put your hands together, and welcome our first preacher of the night, Keegan Ewing. The power's in the message, not the messenger. What's up, DSM? My name's Keegan, as Pastor David just said. Uh, I've been um, 
a senior here. I've been coming to New Life Church for about 16 years. Um, lived here in Colorado Springs as long as that. I've been coming to DSM for about a year and a half. And guys, this is the best part of my week. I love it here. I love you guys. Uh, Pastor David, Pastor Abe, thank you so much for preaching to us every week. It's been a real blessing in my life and I assume a lot of other people's lives. So the message I'm preaching today has a lot to do with my testimony, so I'm going to give you just a shortened version of that, a condensed version. So I've been a Christian pretty much my whole life. I accepted God at the age of five, not really knowing what I was doing, and accepted him again at the age of ten, totally knowing what I was doing. And I've loved God ever since. And... But around the age of 12, I started having issues with sexual morality and pornography. And I dealt with that through a lot of my early teen years. And as I was getting, and about a year ago, I got free of that, which I'm thankful to God for, and that's been awesome. Yeah. But God showed me this later. As I was getting free from sexual immorality, other things crept into my life that still inhibited my relationship with God. And that's why I called this sermon Hidden Killers because I feel like there, God wants to say there are some things in some of your lives that you're taking lightly, but they're inhibiting your relationship with God the Father and you don't realize it. But here's the good news. God wants to set you free from those things tonight. So I'm going to preach a lot from the Bible today, so get ready. Put on your seatbelts. So there's some verses that talk about hidden things in our paths. So the first one is Psalm 140, verses 4 and 5. So it says, Keep me safe, Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Protect me from the violent who devise ways to trip my feet. The arrogant have hidden a snare for me. They have spread out the cords of their net and have set traps for me along my path. And Psalm 141, verses 8 and 9, says, But my eyes are fixed on you, sovereign Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not give me over to death. Keep me safe from the traps set by evildoers, from the snares they have laid for me. And there's a common theme in these two verses, and it's the theme of a snare, a trap in our path. And a simple definition of that is, you know, an animal, not aware, comes into the trap and gets captured, not knowing at all what's happening. And I was a Boy Scout, so I learned about this. And my favorite one was, <laughs> my favorite one was when a hunter would find a path that rabbits had paved, and he would set up a noose right in the path, so that when the rabbit comes along its path, it gets caught and without even seeing it. The rabbit doesn't go off its trail, but it gets caught without even knowing what's happening. So that's all fine. That's fine. And that's what the verse says. And it says there's things in our path that are hidden. But that's about all it says. Like, what are we looking for? What do I need to watch out for? So one definition of this could be seen in Psalm 106. And I'm going to read a lot of that. So prepare. So it says, we have sinned even as our ancestors did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe. From the hand of the enemy, he redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them survived. Then they believed his promises and sang his praise. But they soon forgot what he had done and did not wait for his plan to unfold. In the desert, they gave in to their craving. In the wilderness, they put God to the test. So we gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease among them. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I relate to that verse. Seeing God, him redeeming me, and then forgetting instantly what he's done for me. And going back to what I've done. But this, I also relate to this verse. This is important. So they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. The Israelites did. But they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. So guys, the snares that trap us are the 
idols that this world places in our path, the idols of this world. And, yeah, but, I mean, we don't have Asherah poles and Baal poles standing everywhere. We don't have giant idols. We don't have the Greek gods or Thor, even though I like those movies. We aren't worshiping those gods, but there are, God, there are idols in our lives that we don't realize. So how do they present themselves? One thing that God showed me is that in psychology, there's a concept. It's called the hierarchy of needs, which is essentially the priorities that humans place on certain needs they have in their lives. And after one's fulfilled, the next one is needed in their hearts. So in order, it goes physiological needs, which is food and water and shelter, security and safety, belongingness and love, prestige and accomplishment, and self-fulfillment. So when you get food and water, then you need security for that food and water. And then when you get security, you need to find a place in the world. And then when you find that place, you need prestige, you need to gain stuff. And then you have your purpose, which is the last thing. So what you have to understand is how this relates to Psalm 106. If I could turn my page. Give me a second. So, <laughs> yes. So in Psalm 106, it says that the Israelites, they mingled to the, with the nations, adopted their customs, and worshipped their idols. The well, idols that were worshipped in the civilizations of those times were idols of security. Because the nations didn't understand how natural disasters would happen. They didn't understand why flash floods would come or tornadoes would come. So they worshipped idols to give them a sense of security in their lives so that their civilization wouldn't fly away, essentially. So we're blessed. I mean, we have food, water, we have security. As far So our needs tend to fill, tend to go to those last three things. And that's where idols tend to manifest themselves in our lives. Our needs for fulfillment, uh, in our lives, idols manifest themselves as things that promise to fulfill the needs and desires of our hearts. So when someone goes to Facebook looking for belonging and love, or when someone goes to, you know, their purpose, and that's what they idolize because that's what they need to do, that's their purpose, that's when it becomes an idol. And these seemingly harmless things keep us from the one true God. With me, that was with online media, and it was weird because God told me one day that I was trying to find my source of joy from the Internet and from funny things on the Internet, but that I need to rely entirely on him for that. And that, it's been a struggle, but I've been trying to get there, and it's been difficult. So how do we combat these idols in our lives if they're hidden? If idols are a snare and we're not able to see by ourselves how are we supposed to not fall into these things so romans 1 sorry romans 12 verses 1 and 2 it says therefore i urge you brothers and sisters in view of god's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to god this is your true and proper worship do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and improve what god's will is his good pleasing and perfect will so i see this verse entirely different now after going over this study because I used to see it as, you know, don't sin, don't be like the world, follow God. That's part of it. But now what I see it as is you reject the idols of this world, the ways of this world. Instead, you fix your eyes as God as the source of everything you need. And guys, one question I want you to ask yourselves is, is there anything in your lives that you're looking towards to fulfill needs that you have that you should be looking to God to? And guys, when you finally get free from any, any and all idols in your life, you're able to experience God on a whole another level. You're able to follow him freely and unhindered because the noose that's been around your neck from the snare that's been trapping you for how, who knows how long, it's been removed and you can follow God and you can be as close to him as you want. So as I begin to wrap up, 
I just want to read you this last verse. It's Jeremiah 50, verses 18 through 20. And this is, this is after the Israelites, they've gotten captured by the Babylonians. And that was after a long period of them worshiping idols and God warning them. And, God essentially, and Jeremiah essentially saying, if you don't repent now, you're going to be captured by the Babylonians, which happened. So this is after all of that, and this is what it says. It says, therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, I will punish the king of Babylon in his land as I punished the king of Assyria, but I will bring Israel back to their own pasture, and they will graze on Carmel and Bashan. Their appetite will be satisfied in the hills of Ephraim and Gilead. In those days, at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for Israel's guilt, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but none will be found. For I will forgive the remnant I spare. You know, we read the Old Testament, and we see the Israelites, and we see them go back and forth between worshiping idols and going back to God, and worshiping idols and go back to God. And we think they're stupid, right? Because how could you know the God of the universe? How could he split the Red Sea and you still go back to these idols? But we don't realize that we live the exact same lives. Because we're going back to these idols of the world that they place in our, in our path. And then we go back to God, and he forgives us every time. And if he can forgive the Israelites, no matter how many times they left him, how much more will he forgive us? Give the children. Because we are saved by grace through Jesus Christ. So I just want to pray over you guys real quick. So if you could bow your heads and close your eyes. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us the idols in our lives that we have not realized yet. I pray that you would show us what's hindering us from you and a perfect relationship with you. Lord, I pray over all these students, Lord, I pray that you would just make a relationship with you their one priority and that their eyes would be fixed on you like it says in Psalm 141, that you would keep them safe from the snares set in their path. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all, that was ridiculous. He's a better preacher than me. Good job, Keegan. Yeah. One more round of applause. Y'all did a great job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I got the honor of introducing um, the next preacher tonight. And this woman is, she has my heart. Love her so much. And, guys, one of the things that I love the most about Grace is that she is the best friend. And, like, if you are in this room and you need a good friend, like, come find Grace after because she's seriously just the most authentic person. And she just lets everyone in her alive and, and like, loves them authentically. And I want to be like Grace when I grow up. So without further ado, Grace, come on up here. Give us a word. Can you hear me? Okay. Okay. Hi. As Nikki said earlier, I'm Grace Hall, and I'm a junior at Pine Creek High School. Woo! Where am I? Woo! Pine Creek represent. Okay. Um, so I moved to Colorado Springs this summer, actually, and I've been going to DSM ever since. And something you guys might want to know about me is I'm a huge planner. I like to perfect and plan everything I do. And oftentimes this leads me to worry and get overwhelmed by everything I do. I like to overthink everything, and it's caused me a lot of stress, especially in my relationship with God. And recently, God has been moving in my heart to share some things about God's purpose for your life 
with dealing with what you're calling to, what he's calling you to do. So let's get started. Um, the first thing I'd like to share with you guys is that there is nothing that you or anyone else can do to destroy your purpose in God. We do not have the power to destroy God's purpose for our lives because he is ultimately more powerful than anything we could ever imagine. His power is greater than anything in this world, and therefore it's everything that he has called you to do depends on him, not on us. In Romans 8, 38 through 39, it says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is Christ Jesus. And in this verse, it's saying that there is nothing that anyone can do to separate you from the love of God and what he has called you to do. There's nothing stronger than God, and therefore we don't have to worry about something that might come between us and what he has called us to do. The second thing I'd like to share with you guys is that we will never get the blueprints for our lives. We will never get the plan that God has provided for us in one take because God doesn't work that way. Oftentimes when we ask God for the blueprints of our lives, we think we can do things our own way. And we decide to rely on our own strength instead of God's. And this allows us to worship ourselves instead of God and trust in our own strength instead of his. We need to understand that when we ask God for the blueprints of our lives, we are asking him to submit the plans that he has for us to us so that we can approve them or change them as we deem necessary instead of trusting him and putting our faith in him. And oftentimes we think that this is planning ahead and that we are going to earn the favor of God by doing this. And, but, and I've done that so many times, to be honest. However, when we're doing that, we often... We are disobeying God because he calls us to walk by faith, not by sight, in 2 Corinthians 5-7. He asks us to trust him and to have faith in the plans he has for us and to be sure that he has good and amazing plans for us. We don't have to worry about where he's taking us or where we're going because he has, got, he has us. We don't have to be worried about what we see around us, that if we don't like what we see, that we're not in the right place, but rather trust that he is going to take us where we need to be and where he's called us to be from the beginning of time. And this caused me a lot of anxiety, if I'm going to be honest. I started worrying, like, if I can't change or destroy God's plans for my lives, for my life, and I, he's never going to tell me exactly what I'm going to do, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with my life. I don't know the next step I'm supposed to, supposed to take, and I don't know where I'm going. And I'm here to tell you that it's so much more simple than you could ever imagine. Your purpose in God is not this gra a grand delusion of everything you're going to do. It is so simple and so perfect. All he has called us to do is walk with him. That's it. Since the beginning of time, the only thing that he has asked us to do is walk with him and trust him and know him. In Micah 6.8, it says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so in this verse, God is telling us that all we have to do is treat others fairly, be kind to the people around us, and to walk with God, and trust that he will take care of his world that we just have the privilege of being in. It doesn't depend on us, and he hasn't called you to do anything more than walk with him. 
Oftentimes we get distracted by these delusions of grandeur that we have all these, we do have all these amazing things to do for God, but it's not the main point of why we're on this earth. We're here to know God and to get to know him because it's his earth, not ours. All, <laughs> all he wants from you is to grow closer to him and to become more like him. In Romans 11:36, it says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So we need to understand that everything in this world relies on God and is from God. Everything that happens will go to God and will be res God is responsible for it. And just like I mentioned earlier, that there's nothing that we can do to destroy our, God's plan for our lives, it's because it depends on him, not on us. He calls us to be co-laborers with him and to trust him and do what he has asked us to do. In 1 Corinthians 3.9, it says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. We are the vessel through which God is going to do his work. We aren't the ones who are actually going to accomplish everything. We are just doing what he has told us to do, and his power will move through us. <laughs> We only have the privilege of being able to walk with God and trust him as he takes us to these places and to gaze in awe of what he's doing in our lives and the lives of those around us. We are not responsible for the outcome, but rather the obedience. Because all we bring to the table of God is our desire to know him and our obedience. There is nothing that we can do in this world that God cannot it's as simple as that. You don't have any special gifts or any special talent that God can accomplish on his own. He gave them to you and therefore they are his. Everything he has chosen to do in this world and that he wants us to do is him trying to get to know us better and to work with us and to know us. It's not the other way around that we have these amazing things that God needs us to do or they're never going to get done. He wants us to walk with him. He also commands us to know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And in, repeatedly throughout the Bible, God is called the good shepherd. And the good shepherd protects and guides and takes care of his sheep. And he, furthermore, the good shepherd doesn't require his sheep to be anything other than sheep. And to be honest, sheep are kind of stupid. They... <laughs> wander around and they get lost and they like to do things their own way and God understands that because we are just like sheep and he doesn't call us to be anything other than we're not than other than what we are and he takes compassion on us and takes delight in us despite our fallbacks he understands that we get afraid and that we make a lot of mistakes and that we oftentimes don't always listen to him and we like to do things our own way and so he guides us and takes us where we need to go and he asks us to trust him and to not worry about where we are and to just walk with him as he takes us never in the bible does god say to his sheep go over there and do that while i stand here it never says that all he, he calls them, he takes them and leads them to where they need to be. He guides them to the green pastures and he takes them where he needs to be. He never once just sends out his people to do work without him. He wants us to do the work of God with him, not for him. That is all. And so he doesn't demand perfection 
or performance. He demands perseverance. He doesn't want you to get up on a stage and perform for him and hope that you can earn favor with God because you, he's already proud of you. He looks onto you with delight and knows who you are and loves that about you. He doesn't demand perfection because he knows we fall short every single time. He knows that there is nothing that we can do that he cannot, and he knows we will make mistakes every single time. All he wants us to do is to persevere and to trust him. It is that simple. So don't go to God and get your task and do it and then report back to him and hopefully earn his favor because you already have his favor. He wants a relationship, not an employee. Now I'm going to repeat that just one more time so that you really remember this. He wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want an employee. <laughs> so, so everyone, let's take a deep breath, okay? And we're actually going to do this. Uh, one, one, two, three. Give God everything that you think you have to accomplish for him because he's not calling you to do that. He is simply calling you to walk with him and to commune with him and to trust him. You don't have to be afraid of everything you're going to do for God because he will take you where you need to be at that time. He will guide you to where you need to be and what you need to do at the time that you need to do it. You don't need to worry about if you're on the right path for God and if you are traveling in the right way to make sure that you'll live out your purpose. Because your purpose is to walk with God. Therefore, if you are walking with him, you are in his, pl his plan for your life. So walk with him and he will make your path straight. You will be in your purpose for God. And you won't have to worry about whether or not you are doing the right thing or if you are in the right place. And oftentimes when we feel lost or we don't know where we're going, it's a symptom of going astray. We think that we have it all together, and so we try to do it on our own. And we forget to rely on God. And I've been lost so many times. I've been wondering where he's taking me or where he wants me to go or what he wants me to do with my life. And it made me feel ashamed. I was ashamed because I didn't know what he was calling me to do, and I couldn't hear his voice. And I decided to hide away because I felt like a failure. But that is not what you are. When you feel lost and you can't hear the words of God or you don't know where you're going, you need to run back to him. And you need to trust him and believe that he will take you where you need to go because his arms are always open and he doesn't condemn us when we fall away. But rather he welcomes us with loving arms. So if you feel lost, run back to God and rest in him. Understand that right now is a period of rest for you and that you need to rediscover your purpose for him, to walk with him, and to know what he has called you to be and what you are. So run back to him and let his love cover you, because ultimately that is the only way you will be able to accomplish what he's going to take you with. Okay, so for my, I'm going to lead us in prayer to close. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us and for allowing us to know you, Lord for covering us with your love and for understanding our fallbacks, Lord. 
You are so gracious and so mighty and so amazing to let us live with you, Lord. I pray that every student in this room knows how loved they are and knows that they have an amazing purpose in you, Lord, that they don't have to worry about what their purpose in you is, Lord, that they can rest in who you are and who you say they are. In your heavenly name I pray, amen. Y'all give it up for Grace Hall. That was good. That was good. Take home that point. He does not want an employee. All right, you got a lot of like shout outs on that point. So that was y'all give it up one more time for Grace. Well, it has been an incredible night so far, and we are not done yet. We have one last speaker. Um, this person was actually, I think when I moved here about a year ago, they were, I think, one of the first students I met. I visited their D group, and I just remember seeing this person. I was like, this person's probably going to do something. He's going to speak at some point. He's going to be a pastor. He's going to do something. So he has an incredible word for y'all tonight. So I need everyone to get, I know I've been telling y'all stand up, get up on your feet and y'all give it up for Graham Lyons. Wah, 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 wah. Hi everyone. My name is Graham Lyons. I'm a senior at College Pathways. Represent. So three things before we start. Number one, I'm really freaking nervous, so bear with me. And I would ask that you guys just open up your hearts to what God is speaking because my words are probably going to fail. Number two, I have a lot of scriptures I'm going to be reading. Some of them will be on the screen. Some of them won't. So I'll definitely give you the references if you want to write them down. Um, actually, that was two, not three. Good job. All right. So the title of my message is He is Not Pretending. So how many people have heard the term good news before? That's me. I'm, I'm sure most of us have heard it. It's like a great Christian term that we have when we're referring to the story of Jesus. Why is it called that? Is the good news purely that we get to, you know, do the right things, be a righteous person, and then go to heaven after we die? What makes it good enough that you would want to tell another person? You know, that certainly is good news, but I'll be honest, that isn't that alluring or attractive. Yeah, you could walk, walk up to a person and say, hey, you want to make a decision that will only impact you after you die and in the meantime you have to give everything up you want and also you have to love people even when you don't feel like it? That doesn't sound that awesome. No. The gospel is so much more and is much more beautiful, deep, ravaging and fulfilling. The act of God sending his son to die for us should rightly invoke a deep sense of overwhelming joy and celebration. This is good news that is for today and for now. But this message, this amazing message not only has incredible implications for those of us that seem to have it all together or who do it all right. That's definitely not me. But especially for those of us like me that are broken, that are hurting, that are too far gone, that feel like they're lost or unseen or in the shadows or on the fringes of their school or their society or of their family. So why does this message apply to us? Why are there people who place themselves in extremely dangerous situations and constantly put their lives on the line in these other countries and even in this country? What story, what man, what legacy could possibly cause a movement so powerful that every six minutes a person dies just because they believe in it? Yes, assurance of salvation and forgiveness are integral in the message of Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong there. But this good news does not solely concern itself with these things. 
It is also about how, as a human, something absolutely crucial has been restored to us. This is something that many prophets foretold. This is something that the earth itself was described as yearning for or hungering for. So an example of this is a prophet. His name was Isaiah, and he lived about 700-ish years before uh, Jesus ever stepped foot on earth. He spoke about God's perfect plan to restore us to him. He had such incredible insight into this. Even in the Old Testament, before Jesus ever showed up on earth, people recognized God's intense desire to realign his people with himself. That's because he loves us. God loves us. And that's a term that's thrown around so often like, oh, yeah, God loves us. That's really cool. But it is so beautiful and it should deeply move you. So a scripture I'm going to read from is Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Another person that wrote about this really well was King David. I'm sure many of you have heard of him. He's a popular name in the church. Um, in the wake of a horrible, horrible thing that David did, you know, murdering a dude and then sleeping with that dude's wife, really not a good thing to do, he recognized a piece of God's nature that echoes throughout all of creation and history. And this is Psalms 103.12. It says, as far as the east is from the west, it's a, it's a long distance, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. If you believe in Christ Jesus today and believe that he did die for your sins and then rose again and proclaim him as your Lord and Savior, then something absolutely incredible has happened inside of you. And it's so heartbreaking because I talk to so many believers who proclaim that they know Jesus and proclaim that he is their Lord and Savior, but they don't realize this truth that I'm going to talk to you guys about. It's so incredible. Um, and this thing that I'm going to talk to you about applies directly to you, especially no matter what you have done. So I wanted to share a piece of my personal story. I'm going to get really vulnerable. hope you guys are okay with that. Um, so just to make this long story short, I was eight years old and I was flying to a different state with my parents. I've, I've traveled a lot and I needed to go to the restroom. So I went into the airport stall and someone had, you know, kindly left a porn magazine sitting on the ground there. It was a devastating thing to an eight-year-old young boy to see this. And it sent me into this really dark downward spiral of becoming so addicted to pornography and becoming so caught up in sexual lust. And that's not the end of the story. Um, it does get way better. But in the meantime, like, being caught up in that, it got to a really, really bad place where I would constantly be in conflict with my parents, screaming and fighting, and they had to take away all of my technology, put passwords on everything they owned. And it even got to the point where I wanted a hit of that pornography so bad that I would, like, go sneak into neighbors' houses just to get that next hit. So my point with this message is not to come up here and tell you that you're perfect or that you can just stop worrying about the sin in your life. Don't get me wrong. Don't hear that but rather to inform you of a truth that should drive you to the most action, joy, and deep peace you have ever experienced. So there was this guy named Paul. He used to be named Saul, but, you know, Jesus switched his name. It was really cool. Um, and he wrote all of these letters, or a lot of these letters, to churches in um, the early body of Christ. And he was an incredibly insightful man. Um, and he recognized this kind of separation or struggle in between sin and your saved self. And he wrote about it. Um, it was this realization that his sin was so pervading and impossible to overcome, but also that his sin was not him. It did not determine what his name was. It did not determine, or sorry, 
The sin did not determine what his name was. It did not determine how he spoke, how he walked, or how he dressed, or how he lived. What did determine those things was his eternal and extremely powerful source that was inside of him, Jesus Christ. So reading from Romans 8, verse 20, sums up this whole passage really well. It says, now, he just seems really frustrated in this passage. He says, now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. There's a lot of do's in that little verse, so it's kind of hard to understand what it's saying. But what he's implying is that, yes, he sins, and yes, he messes up, and he struggles with that. But the other part of what he says here is that that sin was not him. You and your sin are not the same person. I'm going to say that literally two more times because that is so important. You and your sin are not the same person. You and your sin are not the same person. So... I want to tell you guys some truths about who you really are, the good part of this message. Are you guys ready to hear that? It would be pretty cool. All right, so the first of these comes from 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's a sort of a long passage, but I am going to highlight two parts of this and the truths that they have. The first of these truths is that you are a new creation and a new person. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. I've heard that verse so many times, and it just kind of became numb, like this droning in my mind whenever I'd hear it. I've kind of zoned it out of, oh, yeah, I'm a new creation, and the old is gone, the new has come, cool. But, you know, what does that actually mean for me, that I'm a new creation? Because I'm still the same person that I was when I was still in sin. Like, I'm still growing up. I didn't die and then, like, metamorphize into, like, this new person. Um, but instead, it's this truth that who God sees you as is more real and more true than who you see yourself as or as who other people see you as. That truth and that eternal reality, like who you are in heaven, your citizenship in heaven is the truest thing about you. And you can draw your entire life's confidence from that. The second of these says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the truth that is pulled from this is that you are the righteousness of God. So let's think about that. Last time I checked, God is, you know, really, really, really righteous. He's the, literally the epitome. He defined what righteousness is. He created it. Yet he calls us his righteousness. For me, that's so hard to swallow and so hard to believe. Because I feel like I've done too much and you know, run too far away from him for him to actually say that about me. But that's not what it says here. It says that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I could with confidence stand in front, in front of any one of you, look you in the eyes and say you are the righteousness of God. The third of these truths is that Christ lives in you. The verse says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians 2.20, if you're wondering. And then the fourth of these uh, truths, they tie in together, is that your heart is alive to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 6.11. Um, and so these are wrapped up in this idea that Christ does live inside of you. And that has an incredible implication because if Christ lives in me, 
That means that I live in him. And if I live in Christ Jesus, that means I'm literally in the throne room of God. That God, when he sees us, he no longer sees us broken or hurting or disgusting person that's covered in sin. But instead, he sees the most righteous, the most holy being in the entirety of existence. That is Jesus. That should give you the confidence to be able to go into his throne room and to worship him and to say, God, you did this so that you could see me and be with me. If that doesn't echo of those things that the prophets foretold, of the story as old as time itself that God wants to reconcile his people to himself, then I don't know what does. It's a truth, and this is a call to action, that bringing your life into conformity, or you want to bring your life into conformity into what is actually true. That's the effort we should be putting forth. And the last of these truths is that you have a good and you have a noble heart. The idea presented in this passage is a little bit different than the other ones, and I'll expand on that. But this is a passage when Luke was, sorry, it's in Luke when Jesus was talking about this parable of the sower, where the sower or farmer would go and throw the seed, uh, hoping for it to, you know, get into the ground and then grow. And it says that there are four different outcomes or places that the seeds fell. The first three that are presented are ones that are negative, that the seeds fell, they either didn't grow, they grew a little bit, or they grew a lot, but eventually end up dying. And then the last of those outcomes, it says that the sower threw the seed, and then it grew, and that it flourished. You know, the disciples were more often than not kind of idiots, and they didn't realize what Jesus was talking about. So in his interpretation of it, uh, specifically with the last fourth one that flourishes, he says, but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. When I read this passage, a face or name might have popped up who fills that good and noble role. Or you might have seen your own face, like me, downcast and X'd out because there is surely no way that I am that. And there are four different people, like I said, described in this parable. And you have the choice to be any one of them. You have the utmost ability to fill any of those four roles. And that includes the one of a good and of a noble heart. So I am here today on this Wednesday night standing on this stage to proclaim to you guys that you do have a good and you have a noble heart. Live out of the truth, the truth that you do have that heart. The most powerful reason that you have to not sin, which I'm sure that we strive for that, is that you are holy and that you are righteous. I was talking with my dad about this earlier today. Um, this is a core message for him. Is this crazy statistic, because he studies the Bible a lot and we tend to refer to ourselves as Christians, right? Because it's in a really good term to refer to ourselves as. And he said we only hear or see the word Christian three times in the Bible. The terms we do see when those early believers would refer to themselves are disciple or beloved or saint or righteous one. That they realized this truth in one another and were willing and did speak that to one another when they referred to themselves. So how do I actually live this way? I was talking with my mom about this. I like my mom and dad. They're pretty wise. And she said that the best way to live this out is to declare the truth out loud over yourself and over others. Not just in your mind, not just in your heart. Even people that are not believers know to declare this truth over themselves. Even people in Alcoholics Anonymous and those kind of Fortune 500 billionaires you hear about, they are where they are and they find success because they know to proclaim identity over yourselves. In the example of Alcoholics Anonymous, when you go to their first meeting, the thing that they have is say, hi, my name is Graham and I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm not actually an alcoholic. That's just an example. Um, 
And then in interviews with Fortune 500 billionaires, the most wealthy people in the world, they say that one of the reasons they're so successful is because they would wake up in the morning and they say, I am successful, and I will make this money today, and I will complete this business transaction. They realized a very integral truth of our faith, and that is that you declaring things over yourself is not you trying to create something that is not there, but rather using the supernatural God-given power of words to realign your mind and your heart with your truest identity. It seems that people are kind of always pushing the edge with sin and wondering how close they can get to sin without actually sinning. Like, oh, I might just be able to go out a little bit later or hang out with that friend a little longer or listen to that one song. It'll be okay. Like, how much can I do before God punishes me or smites me or something? God says you are holy and he says you are righteous and that you are beloved. That should be the opinion that matters the most in your life. Sin and indulging in the world should be the furthest thing from your mind. Um, and the next point is I kind of wrap up and invite the band up. So many people believe that God almost pretends that we're good. Like he's holding this halo over our heads even if we don't deserve it. Kind of like a good guy God of, you know, some dad who really likes his kid even though that kid is a punk. And when he's talking to his friends, he says, oh, yeah, my son Jacob is great even though he does all these terrible things. No. God is not faking it here. He doesn't pretend with this. He says what he means, and he means what he says. So when he says we are holy, and when he says we are righteous, he really does mean it. So to kind of wrap up completely, I wanted to share a little bit more of my story, um, well, specifically a little snippet of it that I feel like wraps this up, and then kind of a call to action. So this story was I was in this Bible study with my dad and two of my brothers, and we were specifically striving after purity together. It's a really powerful thing to have accountability partners, by the way. Um, and I remember sitting in the circle with them. It was something that we did every week, um, that we would kind of go around and say, how are you doing this week? Did you have any successes? Did you fall? Did you have victory? And I was trapped in this pattern for two months or so with this study that I would go to them and I would tell them a half-truth or kind of piece of what I did, but not all of what I did. And I remember it was about two months into the study and we went through our normal routine and I said, my half-truth, I said, I, I kind of did up to here, but, you know, I didn't do past that. I'm good this week. And I remember I spoke and then there was silence. And my dad looked at me and he said, you're lying. And that deeply shook me. I didn't have a response. I, you know, couldn't quickly go patch up what I said because the Holy Spirit deeply convicted me at that moment. And specifically from my dad's perspective, he realized who I was and who I am, that I was righteous and that I was holy and that I am righteous and that I am holy. And he saw that and he listened to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and called that out in me. We need this truth. My heart breaks over this, I mean, kind of sensitive topic over these suicides that we've seen in this city. We need this truth that we are holy and that we are righteous, that if we believe it ourselves, we're gonna find ourselves telling it to other people and it will spread. It's um, infectious, it's contagious. People are taking their own lives because they haven't heard or are reminded of who they actually are, that God says that we are holy and that we are righteous and that we are loved. We need this truth in making even our future plans where you end up going to college or whatever job you get or whatever friends you spend time with, they are not who you are. Who you are is who God says you are. We need this truth in our families, the truth that you are not controlled by your sin, that, oh yeah, he'll just grow up out of it. Oh, like it's just a phase. 
No, you can live in righteousness and in holiness right here and right now. I hope you guys are deeply moved by that. So to close, I want to pray. King of kings, I just praise you so much for the truth and that from the beginning of time that you have been pursuing us, chasing us, saying I want you and saying I need you. And I just thank you that tonight you were speaking to people's hearts and into their spirits and I ask that this become a truth that flourishes in their life and that people are legitimately changed by this and that they legitimately believe that you are good and that you say these things about us. I ask that as we move into this week, we'd be willing to speak this truth to people, to recall these passages of scripture, and to believe what you said about us. In Jesus' name, amen. Send her into worship, guys.